Christ Community Church, located at 25th and Thomas Avenue in Portsmouth, Ohio. Christ Community meets on Saturday at 5 p.m. and Sunday at 10.30 a.m. For more information, visit www.christcommunity.net or check out our Facebook page. Good morning, Christ Community Church. Well, I hope you've had, uh, despite the heat, a great week I have. It's been uh, um, interesting, despite the fact that, um, I told this to somebody earlier, I, I, Megan and I are actually blessed. We have really great neighbors, but even great neighbors have their flaws. I got one neighbor who mows grass three times a week. I'm not kidding, and uh, I don't know why but he does, and uh, I'm pretty sure that's why I can't breathe out of my left nostril and my eyes just spit out gook like crazy, um, but so be it. Um, other than that, it's been a great week. We've had a lot of, a lot of people that we've been praying for, a lot of people in the bulletins who have been struggling with stuff, but so much good news has come out of that. Um, Last night, Ralph Clay was here after having surgery, and he had spinal surgery. It was serious. He was really a lot of pain, but he was here last night, and Ralph was being Ralph. Amen? Yeah, so that was great, and Ralph's back right now. He's at Hillview getting ready to do you know, worship there, because that's what Ralph does, but, um, so praise God for that. Um, a lot of just good things happening. Keep praying for people, uh, but, you know, God has been really just generous and gracious in answering so many prayers, and so, you know, I, I'm getting ready to <clears throat> finish up my semester for my PhD program, and if my eyes would stop leaking and I could breathe out of my left nostril, that would be an answer to prayer as well. So uh, be praying for that. This morning, we're going to look at Jonah. Now, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know that for those of you raised in church, you have heard the story of Jonah 50 million times. The problem is that the story is not told correctly. And I know that sounds arrogant to say, but it, it, it's a fact. Because here's what we do. We tend not to read Jonah. We tend to remember Jonah from like the flannel board when you were like five. And all the, all the talk is about the whale or big fish, which has so little to do with the story. See, here's what happened. Jonah is a prophet. Again, a prophet is somebody that God says, hey, you go and do what you're told, and you go say what I tell you to say. That's what a prophet does. Now, Jonah is told to go to Nineveh and to preach repentance. The problem is he doesn't want to go, and there's a good reason for that. Nineveh was part of the Assyrian Empire. 
Assyria were nasty, nasty people. So, for example, when Assyria, like under Sargon or whoever, and I've had to study all this stuff. I'd, yeah, I've had to, this. This last semester has been primarily Assyrian and Babylonian history. Aren't you jealous? Um, and what the Assyrians would do when they would go out and conquer an empire, another empire, another country, another city, whatever, they would take the chieftain or king or whatever you want to call them back in chains and then in front of everyone boil him alive for fun. This was the Assyria's version of reality TV to boil another human being alive while everyone cheered. So the Assyrians were bad people. And so God comes to Jonah and says, you need to go preach to them to repent, or in 40 days, I will bring down their nation. And Jonah's response is, <laughs> bring down their nation. I don't want to go. And here's another thing we need to realize about people in the Bible. We have this tendency to think that anybody mentioned in the Bible was smarter than us. That's not true. The reason that Jonah says, not only do I not want to do that, I'm going to run. He actually goes to a shipyard and he basically pulls out every penny he has in his pocket, and he says, I want to rent this ship. All right, it, you need to understand that when you read Jonah, and you should read Jonah, it's, it's four chapters, take you 15 minutes. That when Jonah goes to the ship, this is not a Royal Caribbean cruise line. This is a bunch of hardened sailors, and he says, hey, look, I got this much money in my pocket, Will you take me to Tarshish? And the sailors say, yes. Now, we don't even know where Tarshish is, honestly. So many cities in the ancient world were destroyed and all that kind of stuff. We, we don't know where it was. All we do know is he's trying to get as far away from God as possible. Now, you say, how can you get far away from God? Well, going back to what that people were not necessarily brighter than we are today, there was a belief in the Middle East at the time that the farther you got away from a god's temple or shrine, the less power that God had. And so Jonah, despite being picked as a prophet, is stupid enough to believe that if he gets on a boat, God will not have as much power and he can get away with it. So that's what he's thinking. Al, for those of you who've read the book, how'd that work out for him? Right? Not very well. He gets into the Mediterranean Sea, and God goes, <laughs> I wasn't asking, buddy. I was telling. And he throws up a huge storm. And the interesting part of the story is, then the pagan sailors on board act more moral than Jonah does. They start sacrificing, they start praying, and Jonah's down there going, uh, and finally, 
finally, Jonah's conscience hits him, and he says, this is because of me. Throw me overboard. And they said, we, we don't want to do that. And, but eventually, they agree to it. They get scared enough, and they take Jonah, and they toss him overboard. And then the boat is saved, and then, depending on how you interpret the Hebrew, a whale or a great fish comes along and swallows Jonah. And this is where everybody gets confused. Now, here's the first thing you need to know about the whale or the big fish. It has almost nothing to do with the story. That whale or big fish isn't doing much. It is, one, salvation, not judgment, read the book, and two, it is cheap transportation. Because it takes Jonah up to the shores of Nineveh, and literally the Hebrew says, vomits him onto the shore, which meant you smelled Jonah before you saw it. And he walks up, and he finally does what he's supposed to do. But everybody gets caught up in that, and I understand. One, because if you're a Christian, it does prefigure Christ, right? Christ says, just like in the belly of the whale of three days, I will be in the tomb. Okay, yes. So part of that was God foreshadowing what would happen with Christ. But the other part is where people get all up in arms. How could a person survive three days in the belly of a fish? And when I was an atheist, and I was an outspoken atheist. How many 17-year-olds do you know that carried around Sigmund Freud's The Future of an Illusion to try to disprove God? I did. And I tried to do it with one of my buddies, who fortunately is now a Lutheran minister. He didn't listen to me. Thank God. Shouldn't have listened to me either. But I would say this. I remember sitting there. Somebody that some of you know, a guy by the name of Wade Miller. I sat there with Wade one night. And I said, you're going to tell me that a person can survive three days in the belly of Are you kidding me? Give me a break. It's fiction. It's mythology. It's, it's a... And Wade looked at me and said, I, I don't know what to tell you, but I believe it. I was like, I don't And I think I actually told him he was dumb. Years later, because I like to read weird stuff. I know that shocks you. I read this story. How many of you have heard about Armando Ramirez? Yeah, some of you have. Armando Ramirez was a peasant in Cuba, which meant that he wasn't close to Castro, he didn't have money, and when Castro took over Cuba in 1959, he began these authoritarian measures, one of which was a seven-day work week. Nobody got a day off. You had to work 14 hours a day. If you tried to take time off, he'd shoot you. And so Armando Ramirez said, I got to get out of here. 
I've got to get out of Cuba. But the problem was, the only way at that time anybody knew how to get out of Cuba was to build a raft and sail for Miami in shark-infected infected waters and infested waters and, and, and storms and so forth. Most people didn't make it. The majority of people who got on rafts in Cuba trying to get to Miami didn't live. So Armando Ramirez, with no education, decides that the smartest thing to do is to get on a plane. Now, here's the problem. You can't get on a plane in Havana, Cuba, unless you're a friend of Castro's. And he was not. So how do you get on the plane? He decided he would wait for a plane to taxi, get ready for takeoff, and he would run out of the woods, crawl up the wheel, get into the wheel well, and stay there, and when the plane landed, he would be safe. Here's what he did not understand. First of all, this plane was going from Havana to Madrid. That's a nine-hour flight. That's one. Two at 39,000 feet. You want to guess what the oxygen level is at 39,000 feet? Also, because it's not part of the cabin, which is compressed, guess what the temperature is? About 50 below zero for nine hours. The plane lands in Madrid. The captain goes down. This is in the old days, 1969. They didn't have jet bridges and all that stuff. You, you walk down steps and you greet the passengers that came off. He's greeting the passengers. He looks over and he sees a body fall out of the wheel well. So he yells, somebody call the paramedics. They call the paramedics. They come. They find Armando Ramirez completely covered in ice. No pulse. They administer CPR. And a minute later, he says, did I make it? Mondo Ramirez is still alive today. He has kids and grandkids. Nine hours with almost no oxygen and 50 below zero. And every medical expert they've asked, how did he survive? They say, we don't know. But when they asked him, he said, when I realized I couldn't breathe and I was freezing to death, I prayed harder than I ever had. I prayed to God that he would save my life. I didn't used to believe that a person could survive three days in the gut of a fish or a whale. But no medical expert can explain to me how Armando Ramirez survived nine hours in 50 below temperatures with almost no oxygen other than prayer. So I will tell you this as a person who's working on his fourth degree. I believe Jonah was in the belly of a whale for three days and survived.
because God can do anything. Do you hear me? So let's get over that. Whatever objections you have to that, whatever questions you have about that, fine. I will, after the sermon, sit down here on the steps with my coffee, answer your questions if I can. But that's not the point of the book. That's not the point of the book. The point of the book is not about the Ninevites, really. It's about Jonah. Jonah gets vomited onto the shore. He goes and he preaches that you must repent or God will destroy this city in 40 days. And lo and behold, they repent. And Jonah gets ticked off. You never saw a preacher more unhappy with his own success. And so this is where the story picks up in Jonah 4. When God says, I'm not going to destroy the city, 4.1 says, this change of plans greatly upset Jonah. And he, Jonah, became very angry. So he complained to the Lord about it. Didn't I say before I left home that you would do this, Lord? That is why I ran away to Tarshish. I knew that you are merciful and compassionate God, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. You are eager to turn back from destroying people. Just kill me now. Just kill me now, Lord. I'd rather be dead than alive if what I predicted will not happen. And the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry about this? Then Jonah went out to the east side of the city and made a shelter to sit under as he waited to see what would happen to the city. And the Lord God arranged for a leafy plant to grow there. And soon it spread its broad leaves over Jonah's head, shading him from the sun. This eased his discomfort, and Jonah was very grateful to, for the plant. But God also arranged for a worm. And the next morning at dawn, the worm ate through the stem of the plant so that it withered away. And as the sun grew hot, God arranged for a scorching east wind to blow on Jonah. The sun beat down on his head until he grew faint and wished to die. Death is certainly better than living like this, he exclaimed. Then God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry because the plant died? Yes, Jonah retorted, even angry enough to die. So you see, even prophets can be stupid. Then the Lord said, you feel sorry about the plant that you did nothing to put it there. And it came quickly and died, but Nineveh has more than 120,000 people living in spiritual darkness, not to mention all the animals. Shouldn't I feel sorry for such a great city? And then the book ends. Isn't that funny? We never learn if Jonah finally owned up to what God was trying to teach him. And God is trying to teach Jonah. You see, <laughs> the message of Jonah is not about the whale, and it's not about the evil city's need to repent, but it's about the person of God needing to repent from not wanting those he dislikes to repent. 
God's message to Jonah is, I love the Ninevites too. You may not love them, you may not even like them, but I love them. I created them, I've watched them grow up. I have. I, I, what do you want me to do? God loves the Ninevites too. And the question is, do you? Let me ask you a question. This is an honest question. Don't worry, I'm going to be short. Because the, the air conditioner started, we had to turn off one of the air conditioners last night because it was leaking. We got to have people come in and work on them all week. Dad would get mad at me if I didn't say, so be sure to tithe. Um, But I'm going to be short. If you're a Christian, if you've come to faith in Jesus Christ, you should know that if you die today, you will be in heaven with Jesus Christ. If you're alive when Jesus returns, you will be with Jesus in the new heavens and the new earth, and you will spend eternity with God. But let me ask you this, and don't give me any bull. Who do you not want to be there? And don't tell me you don't have someone in mind. Because lying is as much of a sin as anything else. There are people you don't want to see in heaven. There are people I don't want to see in heaven. Whether it was my girlfriend who cheated on me in high school, and she never apologized. Or whether it's the guy who cut me off last night in New Boston. There are people you don't want to see in heaven. Don't lie to me. But the problem is, that's not how God thinks. I, years ago, back when I was a thin young man who didn't need these, I had to go to a church planting boot camp in Dallas, Texas. Three days, worst three days of my life. Horrible. Put you through the ringer. And one day they say, okay, this morning you're going to meet with a licensed professional Christian counselor. So all of us, about 10 or 11 of us, we go into this room, and this husband and wife come in, and they sit down with us. And the first thing out of her mouth is, I want you to take a pen and paper, we all had pen and paper, write down the names of everyone you hate. And some young, aspiring pastor says, I don't hate anyone. And she says, don't give me that blankety-blank. I don't need that Christianese here. Give me the truth. If you don't hate anyone, that means, one, 
You're either lying or two, you don't know enough people to be able to plan a church. So, if you're telling me you don't hate anybody, that means you're not capable of planning a church, so shut up and write down the names of every person you hate. And we said, yes, ma'am. And we started writing. Took longer than I thought. And she said, now here's what you're going to do. And you can't get any money from this church planting network until I sign off on you being a church planter. And here's what you're going to do. You're going to take that list of names of the people you hate, and you're going to take it home, and you're going to pray for them every single day for 30 days. And I'm going to check. Every day. You're going to pray for their salvation and their forgiveness and God's blessing on them. You're going to do that. And she said, because if you think you can be a pastor, to be a pastor, you are called to be holy as your father is holy. You are called not just to be forgiven, but to be a person of forgiveness. Because Jesus himself said you should love and pray for your enemies. And Jesus himself said you will be forgiven as much as you forgive. And she said beyond that, don't you realize this? That when you refuse to forgive, when you refuse to just let it go, what you are doing is you're giving power over yourself to that person. You're giving part of your life to that person. Why? Heard another pastor say, if you're carrying around a ton of bricks, just dump them. Be free. To be a person of forgiveness is to be free. Free of anger, free of hatred. Free of that darkness that just eats at you. Let it go. Let it go. I know that's easier said than done. That's why that counselor looked at me and said, 30 days. 30 days. Be praying for that person because it's going to take you some time to work through it. And she wasn't saying that what they did was right. She was saying that you need to strive to be holy as your Father is holy, the one who sent His own Son to die in your place for your sins, for forgiveness. How can you stand at the cross and look up at Jesus Christ who died for you? And be arrogant enough to say, but that person's not worthy. Are you worthy? I'm not worthy. Are you telling me that I'm worthy? 
the death of the Son of God? I'm not worthy. You're not worthy. I've had people come to me. Do you see who was in church tonight? No, who? Such and such. Do you know who that is? No. Well, they did this, and they did that, and they did this, and they did that. Now, my response to them is more polite than what I'm going to tell you. But what's going through my head is, that's your problem. And if you can't get over that, if you think that nobody, just because you don't like a person, is, is not worthy to come through those doors, then don't let those doors hit your butt on the way out. Dad and I don't agree on much. But we agree on this. We will preach the truth as we believe it and pray over it and study it. But the moment we don't welcome anyone through those doors, it's time to lock them up and sell the building. I understand that people have wronged you. I am not excusing that. I understand they probably owe you an apology, and I also understand you ain't getting it. What I'm telling you is that for your Father, for the Son, and with the help of the Spirit, you need to let it go. And never, ever, ever in your heart that pops up in your heart, and it will ever not want to see someone repent and come to faith in Jesus Christ. I don't care who it is. I'm, I'm not much into, I know it's all the rage, I'm not much into true crime. I was a prosecutor and I was a criminal defense attorney. I did murder cases. I did a death pen federal death penalty case. Um, I've been on true crime podcasts because I was working on that on a death penalty case, a case that's ongoing. I'll get to that in a second. But I do know enough that every time I flip around Hulu or whatever, every time I see a true crime thing, it's always the same people, Ted Bundy, you know, Charlie Manson, and of course, the son of Sam. How many of you remember the son of Sam? Yeah, David Berkowitz. David Berkowitz claimed, he's a guy who'd walk up to couples or young women with a 44 caliber and blow their brains out on the streets of New York. And he claimed that he was receiving messages from a, from a Doberman pincher. Okay. He was sentenced to life in prison. And he's still, I think, on Rikers Island in New York. David Berkowitz claims, this claim, I don't know, I can't look in the heart of people. He claims 
that he was under demon possession and that he's come to faith in God and is now a preacher and preaches the gospel. Others have said, nah, he's a scam artist. Maybe. I don't know. I don't know. But if I get to heaven and the son of Sam is there, I don't get to make that call. I don't get to be the bouncer of heaven, and neither do you. God makes that call. There are going to be people in heaven and the new heavens and new earth that you don't like. And there are going to be people in hell that you do. Because being a good person or a likable person or whatever is not the threshold. It's faith in Jesus Christ. That's the way it is. I understand there are people you don't like. There are people I don't like. There have been people in my ministry who have listened to me preach and attended the church where I was lead pastor that when they walked up to me, I went, oh, what now? But here's the way the late, great Tim Keller put it. He said, when you look at your neighbor, and the Bible defines your neighbor as everyone, the question is not their morality, their likability, their work ethic, whatever. The question is this. The Bible teaches that every human being is made in the image and likeness of God. So it's not what they deserve. It's what God deserves. They were made by God. They are God's children. What does God deserve? What does God deserve? It's tough stuff, I know. But this is what the Bible teaches. I, I don't know how many people read anymore. Everything that I look at says that people aren't reading anything. But for those of you who do read, and I know there are a few of you, take 30 days and read the book Unbroken by Laura Hillebrand. Unbroken. Tells the story of Louis Zamperini. Louis Zamperini was from a poor home in Los Angeles, but he was an exceptionally gifted runner. He went to the, the Olympics, did well, came home, was drafted into service in World War II. He was in the Navy. 
his ship got torpedoed by two Japanese torpedoes, and it went down. He managed to get into a lifeboat, fought off tiger sharks. Finally, after days and days adrift, they saw a ship. And Louis thought, thank God. Unfortunately, that ship was a Japanese destroyer. And they got hauled aboard, and Louis Zamperini was put into a POW camp where a person that they called the bird managed the camp. The bird recognized Louis Zamperini from the Olympics and set out for the next two years to torture him every single day. Made him do push-ups and feces and urine, beat him. And so... When Japan finally surrendered, Louis Zamperini came home to Los Angeles. But he came home a battered and bitter person. He became a violent alcoholic. He drank when he wake up, and he drank till he fell asleep. And in between, if his wife dared to question, he'd hit her. One night, a friend of Louis Zamperini said, I want you to come with me. And he said, to what? He said, you'll find out. And so he took him to a tent revival. Remember tent revivals when they were around? Took him to a tent revival in Los Angeles with a young preacher no one had ever heard of named Billy Graham. And Billy Graham got up and he preached. And Louis Zamperini said, for some reason, the Holy Spirit just knocked me silly, and I came forward crying, and I came to faith in Jesus Christ. Part of his confession was that he had been planning for two years. He had been saving money, all the money he could save, for a ticket back to Japan. And he'd bought a forty-five pistol. And he wanted to go back to Tokyo and find the bird and shoot him. He thought that would end his misery. He came to faith, confessed his sin of wanting to commit murder. And then he spent the next year still planning his trip to Tokyo, which he took. And he found where the bird lived. And he knocked on his door. The bird refused to answer. He was convinced that Louis Zamperini was going to shoot him or attack him. Louis Zamperini said through the door, I've come here in the name of Jesus Christ to say, I forgive you. And he will as well. I've come here to tell you, God will forgive you. And he walked away a new man. He was free. He was free.
So what I'm asking you to do is not easy, but I'm going to ask. I want you to go home. I want you to think about it. I want you to think about anyone you have bitterness toward, anyone you haven't forgiven, anyone that you hate. And all of you have someone. And I don't care if they're living or dead. I want you to write their name down. And I want you every day to go in the name of Jesus Christ and pray for them. And if they're past, pray for yourself. That you will forgive and let it go. And I want you to do that remembering this. That nearly 2,000 years ago, the Son of God was beaten and whipped and crucified to save you, to forgive you. I know it's tough. But all of us, regardless of where we are in our faith, need to repent from not wanting others to repent. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you first and foremost for your word and your forgiveness. All of us have a little Jonah in them myself included. May we be willing to forgive as we are forgiven. May we just let it go and not give power over to that wrongdoing or to Satan, but be free. Be free to be joyful people as you want us to be. Be free to love others, not because of what they deserve, because of what you deserve, because you are their father. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. God go with you. I know that's not easy to hear, but hey, Reds are on a winning streak. We're seven and three in the last ten games, you know. That's going to cool down today. Life's good. So go have a great day. You're out early and beat the Baptist to Bob Evans. See you. Christ Community Church, located at 25th and Thomas Avenue in Portsmouth, Ohio. Christ Community meets on Saturday at 5 p.m. and Sunday at 10.30 a.m. For more information, visit www.christcommunity.net or check out our Facebook page.